Good morning. I'm going to add my uh, greeting to that of Michael's for the dads that are here. Glad that you're here with us. Happy Father's Day. This is typically in the United States the lowest attended church Sunday of any weekend in the year. And that's not true of you. So how great is that? Thank you that you're here. And I know that you're hungry for God's word and you love to praise God. You love to know more about God and who you are to him, who he is to you. So I look forward to studying with you today what we're going to look at. Just a reminder, if you happen to come in later, maybe you, you missed the announcement earlier that Tom and Lisa Jelinek are out in the atrium after the service and they run the clothesline ministry uh, in Langsburg. And it's a, a really great couple who are doing a great work. They're part of the missions team that we support here. So I would encourage you, if you get a chance to do nothing else, just stop by and say hi to them this morning on your way out. Before we jump into this, I would love to pray with you, and then we'll get into the text of the material that we're going to look at this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every single soul who's represented here, both by um, virtual attendance and in-person attendance, and the privilege we have of studying your word that you're going to cause it to come alive is what we're confident of because that's what you do through the power of the Holy Spirit. What we ask, Father, is that you would show us application for our life. How would you have us respond to what we learned this morning? And teach us. We ask that you would do this for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus because he's worthy of it. So show us how we can interact with people in our life. And we ask for that in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. amen. What you're about to look at is very information heavy, and it has so much detail that I, I kind of wonder how it actually applies, but yet after the nine o'clock service, individuals came up and said, wow, there was so much in there that I just couldn't write fast enough to get all that material down, and there was so much that applied to my life. So I don't know if you're a note taker, but be prepared to write fast. And because we got out early last week, well, that doesn't mean you're going to get to this week. So, okay, I'm not going to cause anybody to miss their meal, but just know that your steak will wait for you and, and we'll, uh, we'll get through this material and we'll probably be done like maybe 10 minutes longer than normal. But let's, let's dive into this. I'm going to do a, a brief review for you of what we touched on last week in chapter 9. We saw that God made a unilateral covenant. And we talked about what a covenant was and that unilateral covenant, not bilateral, meaning negotiated between two parties, but one individual. And God made a covenant with humans. And it, it read this way, Genesis 9, 9. Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, meaning you were the descendants. We came through the line of Noah. Yet he does this covenant without any negotiations with the humans. Meaning we can't invalidate it or we can't validate it. God just says, this is what I'm going to do. You don't have to take any action on it. And I pointed out to you that this is absolutely astonishing because God knows us. And he knows very quickly after the flood that people are going to continue to behave sinfully because they have sin in them. It's a sin nature. And he knows that mankind is going to act in rebellion. Yet God makes this covenant that he's not going to destroy the earth again until the last days. And very quickly, as you're going to see this morning, the humans start delving into wickedness and they begin putting it on display just like they did before the flood. Nonetheless, the covenant is not negated. It's not a conditional covenant. Even though the earth becomes vile, God signs the contract and puts his signature in the sky in the form of his bow 
and says, I want you to be reminded, you don't have to fear. The earth is not going to come to the end until I deem that it's going to come to the end, and it won't happen in the same way. Now, what we didn't cover last week is just before God makes this amazing covenant, He tells Noah that He expects that Noah and Noah's family are going to go out and they're going to cultivate the earth. He expects them to abundantly fill the earth, not only repopulate it, but greatly increase and that they would scatter over the face of the earth. Watch with me on the screen, Genesis 9-7. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply in it. Now, for a moment, you're going to feel like I'm trying to teach you the Hebrew language because I got like six Hebrew words this morning for you. So there's only two here at the beginning, but I want you to see this words populate and multiply. And this very first one, populate, it's, it's actually um, from the study of insects. This word sharats in the Hebrew language, it, like insects really gather together when they breed, they populate and they squirm all over. And that's kind of the imagery that's associated with this when he says, I want you to populate, wriggle worms, swarm, be lots of you. And then he uses another word that seems very similar. And here it is, rabah. And this one is the word multiply. And he says, I want you to do this exceedingly, more and more and more of you so that we really understand how this plays in. Just hold those thoughts in your mind. So God's telling them to take on the land, to spread out, and not long after blessing Noah and his family, they begin to do exactly that. We find them prospering, and Noah sets up operations, and he begins farming the land, and we find that in verse 18 of chapter 9. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, whole, the whole earth was populated. And you might wonder, why is just Ham pulled out? Well, because he's going to play a really significant role in this story of the Tower of Babel as it develops. So the author, Moses, we believe it is, calls out Ham as the father of Canaan, and then comes verse 20. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. There's an imagery that the ancient world used of individuals who would put themselves on display. And they used the imagery from this particular word that I want you to see on the screen, this word galah, to denude yourself. And it's not done in a way like I'm getting into the shower so I gotta take my clothes off but rather someone who's being pretty flagrant about displaying themselves. Except in this case, Noah's inside his tent. So here's the imagery that the Hebrew language captures. When individuals and nations went to war and they would capture individuals in war, they would typically take those captives and haul them back to their homeland and they would make them slaves. And when they made them slaves, they would clean them and polish them up and then they would strip them of their clothing and put them on an auction block so they could display them and get the highest price for them. That's the imagery that's associated with this word galah here because Noah's that drunk. He's not just beyond the legal limit. He's so drunk, he strips and displays himself so that he can be seen, but he's in his own home, and here's where the intrusion comes in. 
somebody's watching him. And his own son begins to mock him. Verse 22, here's Ham's name again, one of his sons. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And this is more than just seeing like, oh, I want to look away. That's more than that. I, I worked in a nursing home when I was a teenager. And I had the job of taking meals from the kitchen where they were prepared down to the rooms where the patients were at. And sometimes some of the patients were so far out of their mind, they they weren't even aware of their circumstances. And I'd I'd walk in rooms and deliver trays to 80, 90-year-old individuals who were completely stripped of their clothing. And, you know, when you're 13 or 14, you don't want to see that. And like, oh, here's your food. And walk away really quickly. And, And there was something shameful about it. And you don't want to be exposed to it. Well, Noah's in his own home. I don't think he was intending to expose himself to other individuals, but he's that drunk. And his son sees him. And we've got this word ra'ah. And it says, according to this description, there's an enjoyment going on in the head of Ham. He's spying on his dad. And it comes across like this creepy, peeping Tom thing going on. But it turns into mockery. So catch this. Noah's own son, whom he's just spent so much time with on the ark, who he's gone through all this terrible survival mode with, the same one who witnessed his dad build an altar and worship God, the same one who saw his father engage in conversation one-on-one directly with God, the same one who saw his dad receive the covenant from God as a blessing on humans and God's blessing to prosper. Now see, there's something really perverse in his heart. That he would take a moment like this and turn this into a moment of mockering and get a kick out of this and then not stop there, tell other people. Last Hebrew word for a few minutes, I promise you. This particular word, nagad. And it means to actually stand boldly out and just advertise it. You can't believe what dad's doing. You got to come see this. Look at what he's doing. So in short, he's unashamedly trashing Noah. So there has to be some weird family dynamics going on there. What would be in his heart to make him do that about his own dad? Because for sure, in this moment, the respect for his father's role and his dad's authority is not present in his life. Kind of hold that imagery in place as we go into the story now, because what we find is that Genesis 9 is a lot like Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. It it reveals this new beginning that God has given. Genesis 9 reveals a new beginning, a, a fresh new start for humanity. But just like with Adam at the new beginning in chapter 9, it opens with failure. And it it reveals something about the human heart. It reveals that we have this failure within us to be able to stand against sin if the living God doesn't intervene in our life. Specifically speaking of Noah, I wanted to see this quote from Dr. Pink. He wrote this back in 1925. Arthur W. Pink is a well-known theologian and long since gone, but he wrote this. 
Placed in an environment in which the besom of destruction had swept clean, a solemn warning of the judgment of heaven upon evildoers only recently spread before him, the blessing of God pronounced upon him, the sword of magisterial authority placed in his hand, Noah nevertheless fails to govern himself and falls. Remember the old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. That was really resonating in my mind as I'm working through this passage. Noah and his son provide this clear image of the depravity of man's heart. And yet at the same time, they're revealing just how desperately humans really need a savior. That nothing short of God intervening and coming and being among us and granting us a new birth, nothing short of giving us a new beginning and the removal of sin will do for us. In other words, we really need Jesus. We need to be born again. Amen, right? We know that to be true. Scripture says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Let's keep going with the story. We see how the brothers respond, verse 23, but Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, cursed be Canaan, and stop right there, just pause for a moment. He's not cursing his son. He doesn't say cursed be Ham. Canaan is one of his descendants. Let's keep going with the verse. So he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. One of the remarkable proofs of Scripture, that it's the inspiration of Scripture that you hold in your hands, whether you've got it electronically, you own a hard copy of the Bible, however you own the Bible, one of the proofs of the inspiration of Scripture is that the Bible, in the Bible, human nature is painted in full color with no special filters whatsoever. It's written by humans inspired by God, though. And God doesn't allow us to remove our warts and wrinkles. He puts it on full display. So the true character of both the lawbreakers and the heroes is accurately and authentically depicted here. Alexander Pope wrote long time ago, and I'm sure many of you have heard this quote, to err is human. Well, it's also very human to conceal our blemishes. We especially use social media for that. We want to make ourselves look good, so we only put up the best things about ourselves. But what God does when He allows His Word to be written, He displays human nature as it really is, warts and all, no special filters. See, it's that, that's one of the things that actually reminds me of this amazing covenant that God has given us, that He won't destroy the planet. That's why the covenant is so outstanding. God knows how rough we really are at our core. Sitting in your seat today, maybe you're at home watching, you know what you're really like inside. Is it not amazing that God still pursues us? Because we know what we're really like, and He pursues us anyways. So that Noah's failure is on display in black and white here for all the world to read without any excuse for his sin, and on top of that, his own son's enormous egregious behavior 
It's on full display here too. That all happens right after God gave them a fresh new beginning, right after this second chance, which amplifies for me the, the people in the Bible, they're authentic. These are genuine humans. They're just like us, yet God loved them anyways, the same merciful God which pursues you. I actually love the reality that in the New Testament, Noah is called righteous Noah, and God sees him as a man of faith. Yeah, he's got that in his past too, and his kids are messed up in some degree, and yet he's still called faithful. God sees him through that lens. Now, that backdrop sets up what we're about to reveal in the story of Babel in chapter 11. But to get there, I just need to touch on chapter 10 for just a moment. If you haven't read chapter 10 before, what you're going to find, maybe you read it later today, it's the genealogies. And so it says, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And, and you might think that's good things to read if I want to go to sleep at night. It's kind of boring. But there's some details that come out of that, especially from the line of Shem, Shem, Hem, and Japheth. And from the line of Shem comes Jesus. That is where the genealogy goes. And you should consider, if you get a chance to read it, that every tribe Every tongue, every nation on this planet right now, every nation represented here at our church, every one of us on earth is found in embryo form in Genesis chapter 10, and it's traced back to a common source all the way back to Noah. But when you come to Ham's genealogy, that youngest son, the one who mocked his father, you find a stark departure from the things of God. And he produces some very unsavory characters in his line. Look with me on the screen again at John, or Genesis 9.25. So he said, Noah speaking, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brother. One of those who comes through the line of Ham, through Canaan, through his offspring, is a young man by the name of Nimrod. And Nimrod is highlighted in Genesis 10. So I told you I'm not going to go into it, but just one little paragraph here so you can see what it says about Nimrod. Look at me on the screen. It says this, the sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Ramah and Sabatek. <laughs> you try it. Sabtekah. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Now you can see why people go to sleep when they're reading this, right? Okay. So verse 8. Now, Cush became the father of Nimrod, and it stops the genealogies and it gives us comment. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Apparently, that was a popular catchphrase at that period of time. Verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kelna, in the land of Shinar, which is... Persia, what we think of as Iraq and Iran today. Verse 11, from that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth and Kalah and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. So we've got an individual who's not just a leader, he's a leader of leaders. This guy is some kind of conqueror. Now, the name Nimrod in the Hebrew language actually means rebel, but most historians think that that term or that name was attached to him later in life, kind of like a nickname, like, that guy's really a rebel. Well, that's what the word Nimrod means in the Hebrew language. 
But chapter 10 reveals he was not just a leader, but he was an organizer of movements, movements against God, movements in rebellion. And we're told that Nimrod was a hunter, and it seems to indicate that he's actually a hunter not just of animals, but he's a hunter of men. He's someone who lies in wait and kills people. And we're told he became a mighty one on the earth, and it appears that his might is through the conquest of these regions, and he became a ruler by force. So in brief, it's repeated three times in Genesis that he's a mighty one before God, a mighty one before God, a mighty one. And then it repeats it again in 1 Chronicles that he's mighty before God. Well, we need to understand what that's describing because in the Hebrew language, the word is geber, and it actually means a chieftain or a ruler over people. A non-biblical source from an ancient language is from the Chaldeans. The Chaldean proverb actually wrote this about him in a paraphrase. Cush begat Nimrod, who began to prevail in wickedness, for he slew innocent blood and rebelled against Jehovah. So when you're studying the Hebrew text, it carries this really strong impression of this rebel who's pursuing his own ambitions, and the form of his rebellion is to lead this open revolt against God. And the beginning, Scripture says, of his kingdom was Babel. And that's why it appears in Genesis chapter 10, because you're about to learn about the Tower of Babel. Chapter 10 is actually the first mention of Babel in the Bible. And in the ancient languages, it meant the gateway of the gods, small g. God later associated it with confusion. And today we even use it in the English language. That person's just babbling. Or we study things through software called babble to help us learn other languages. Well, the form of his rebellion is to lead this open revolt against God. And by assembling all these pieces together, we find that Nimrod is somebody who organized governments over which he presided. And now we can link it with chapter 11. Now, here's a setup. If you haven't read chapter 11 yourself, you find it to be very simple, just really straightforward information about how we got the nations that we have today, how we got the languages. But here's a little bit more than just speculation for you. Without going into all the genealogies, it appears that the events of Babel and the Tower of Babel happened within 100 years of the flood. And the reason that we know that is because of one particular individual who's mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, and his name is Peleg. And Scripture actually says in chapter 10, the name of the one who was Peleg, he was born during the days that the earth was divided meaning when the earth was scattered and sent out. Well, he was born within 100 years after the flood. So check this. It's roughly 100 years after the flood, still within the lifespan of Noah because he lived 300 years after the flood, and the bulk of the earth's population has already abandoned God. 100 years, and the population is still one nation, one language, one family, and they're deep into rebellion because God had said, get out there, increase, spread, scatter, take on the land, and yet they want to be together. If the whole earth is to be repopulated, each successive generation is going to have to spread out. They're going to need more geography. But to the people of Babel, a dispersion would be inconvenient. 
should we even say problematic? Because what if Bob is your iron worker and Samantha is your poet and, and George, he makes your vases and God's telling you to scatter them out and you lose your vase maker and you lose your artist and you, you, you lose your iron worker? No, that's not convenient to us. We, we don't want to separate. Well, there's more going on here than just that. There's this issue of God's will versus man's will, and clearly they're not concerned about God's will. So human nature is this. Human nature is if obedience to God stands in competition with the fulfillment of our own desires, you can bank on it every single time without the Holy Spirit involved. Human nature is we won't hesitate to replace obedience with preference. We do that. We will replace obedience to God with preference if it isn't for the Holy Spirit of God working on us. I've told you if you've been at Newell for very long, and I haven't quoted him in maybe a few months, but one of my favorite old dead theologians is Charles Simeon. And Charles lived at a period of time when there was no distractions from electronic media, no television, no music that he had to listen to recorded. He had time to write. And so as you read what he says about this issue, I, I want you to take this quote in and just go through it with me slowly. People ask me for this quote after the first service, and I'll get it to you if you want it, but let's just drink this in. Charles Simeon wrote in 1836, God has prescribed a line of conduct to us which is difficult and self-denying. He requires us to sit loose to the vanities of this world and to seek our rest and happiness above. This but ill suits our earthly and sensual dispositions. No one writes like that anymore, right? Nobody speaks like that. Drink it in. This but ill suits our earthly and sensual dispositions, hence, we choose not to submit to such restraints. We think we are at liberty to please ourselves. We pronounce the commands of God to be unnecessarily strict and severe. We content ourselves with such a conformity to them as will consist with the indulgence of our own desires, and we prosecute our plans without any reference to His will or subjection to His control. Sound familiar? That could be 2022. Human nature is so consistent, that could be 100 years after the flood, 1836, or 2022. How offensive is that to the life of God? You don't have to wonder. It's clearly on display. Romans chapter 8, Paul wrote about that very issue, that those who are in the flesh and choosing the things of this world, they can't please God. So, since the purposes of the people of Babel are in this direct place of opposition to God, there's no wonder that He steps in. If you have the E2E study book this week, you're going to notice that what Rich writes is there's this issue going on of what man intended to do versus what God designed. And they stand in stark contrast against each other. So here it comes. There's only nine verses, and they go really, really fast, and you're going to leave it wanting more information, like, I want to know more. We find that these nations came into existence by one single act of God. Here's verse 1, chapter 11, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And in the Hebrew tongue, it means they were of one lip and one vocabulary. And it doesn't just stop with one word there. 
So we could all be speaking English. We do speak English here in the Midwest, and you might be from Michigan and speak a specific form of English. But we might not all speak the exact same words. What verse 1 is revealing is there's no variation in the way that they communicate with each other. Let me expand on that. You can be from Michigan and speak English, and you can be from Tennessee and speak English, but there might be a little bit of difference in the dialect. There's a whole lot of difference in the dialect when you go to the eastern hills of Tennessee and you go into the Appalachian Mountains. So let's say you're driving through the eastern hills of Tennessee and you get a flat tire in your car and you come into town and you say to somebody in Appalachia, I, I need to find someone who can repair my tire. Now, you might say tire and they might respond to you whether well, the tar store is down the road. No, I didn't say I want a tar store, I want a tire store. That's what I said, there's a tar store down the road. Now, and you might say, I want to just hire someone to fix my tire. And they might say to you, well, you can hard someone down the road. No, I want to hire someone. No, you can hard someone. I don't want it to be hard. So you, you catch the difference between how we might use words, even here in the United States. But let's say you speak English and you go to Australia. And when you're in Australia, you might be sitting at a steakhouse and say to someone, I, I would like a straw for the soda pop that I'm drinking. Could I have a straw, please? And that waitress might look at you like you're from another planet. Say, straw? Why would you want a straw? I want a straw so I can drink my beverage. And they might look at you really weird, like, Mark, you don't belong here. And then say, oh, you want a pipe, huh? And I would say, no, I don't want a pipe because I actually said that to a waitress in Australia. <laughs> and she said, no, that's what we call your USA version of a pipe. We call it, we call it pipe, you call it straw, I'll get you a pipe, okay? We have these interchanges of words, I get that. Verse 1 is saying they didn't have that issue. It's saying they used the same language and the same words. Verse 2, it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Now that should trigger your memory. You just read about the land of Shinar. That's Nimrod's territory in the land of Shinar and settled there. The land of Shinar is where they built Babel. That's the Mesopotamian Valley. That's what we would today call the Fertile Crescent, where Iran and Iraq come together, where the Tigris and the Euphrates flow through. And that's not actually far from where the Garden of Eden was originally before the flood. What I want to know is, who's the they? Who is this group? Well, if we do a little digging and we just use our memory from what we've learned so far, in chapter 10, we find that the land of Shinar, this Persian place, has been established by one particular ruler, and his name is Nimrod. Let me remind you, Genesis 10 again, verse 8, now Cush became the father of Nimrod, he became a mighty one on the earth, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and it goes on to say, in the land of Shinar. Now out of all the genealogies in chapter 10. There is only one person who rises to the level in which this kind of a label is attached to him, 
and it's not a good label. He's actually called this mighty one on the earth, which means warrior, because he's hunting people. Here's the Hebrew word, I promise you, it's the last one for today, and this one is talking about somebody who lies in wait, waiting for others, so he can not only capture, but kill. See, the implication is to catch men. So here we have the great-grandson of Noah, and he's powerful, and he's prospering, but he's vicious, and he's ruthless, and he's deadly. And he seems to rise to power by the sheer force of his will, and he's in this place of rebellion against God. So Nimrod establishes in the very beginning his kingdom in this Shinar place, this land of Persia, and he constructs the city called Babel, and he reaches his position by force. Verse 3. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Let's build a city, but there's no mention that it's for God. There's no mention of any relationship to God not for the glory of God, but for ourselves. We need this for us. So this is the first city that's built after the flood, and it's built by man, and it's built for man, without God involved at all. So what's the deal with the tower? What's the point of it? It can't be for defensive measures. There's nobody else on the planet. There's no other nation to come against them. They're alone but they're together as a group, so it's obviously not for defense. Well, in the world of archaeology, world of archaeology, there's this form that's been discovered called a ziggurat. I think it goes back 200 years or so. You're probably familiar with it. And there's been like 30 ziggurats that have been found in the Mesopotamian Valley in that region, which apparently were modeled after this very first one. But what was really common about them is they were all square at the base, and then the tower was built up from the square base. Well, the base was the place where people would come to worship the gods, small g. And that would be their center where they would connect themselves to heaven. And so we find them saying, we, we want to build this tower. And the thought was this, the notion was that this ladder or this high tower would be used by the gods to descend to the humans and the humans to ascend, to connect with the gods. And that's the way it actually reads in the Hebrew language, that they're trying to connect with the heavens. See, there's no other way to understand this other than they're attempting a connection with something other than the one true God. So if you're putting the pieces together, Nimrod has rejected a relationship with the one true God. He's not like his great-grandfather Noah. He's actually mocking the things of God, building something of his own design. So here's where we discover this really blatant defiance. He's got this refusal to obey the command of God because the command of God was to be fruitful, multiply, get out there. And they're saying, no, we don't want to be scattered abroad. We want to do our thing. We don't want to be scattered over the face of the earth. God's command, subdue the earth, conquer it. But they're rebellious against God, and that's where the pride surfaces. So you have one humanity, all with one tongue, 
all with one religion, all with one world leader. And it sounds like a precursor to the last days on this planet because Satan's ultimate strategy is to raise up a one-world government, a one-world leader, a one-world religion. That's what the book of Revelation is about, the one called the Antichrist or the beast. This is like a precursor to that. Because Nimrod's objective, as you've seen, he's already built all these cities, is to establish a world empire. And to accomplish this, he needs two things. He needs a headquarters, a city that he's built for himself, and he needs a campaign slogan. And his campaign slogan is this, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make us really famous so that people will remember us. And that's a good campaign slogan. This is an excessive pride issue, and the aim that he has is to keep mankind under his leadership. Otherwise, we're going to be scattered. What you find in this story is that the attitude of the people of Babel is essentially the same attitude that you find in Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the same attitude you find throughout the Bible. It began with Adam and Eve, and here's the attitude. The attitude is that of rebellion against God's design. And consistently, you're going to find it driven by this issue of pride. So here comes God on the scene, verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. I wish I could read this in the tone that God may have used, all I can do is speculate, like, what was behind the emphasis on that? And this is what they began to do. I kind of speculate in my mind, it's like, and this is what they began to do? Not as though God needs an answer to a question, but more of an emphasis like with an exclamation point, and then goes on to say, nothing will be impossible for them. Here's why I understand that was said that way. Part of what you and I enjoy in the United States is a democracy, a hard-fought-for democracy. Not every nation has a, a de democratic form of government, but within a democracy system, there's a system of checks and balances. Well, on a global scale, what the nations of this planet do for each other is we have a system of checks and balances. Nations keep other nations in check. In Babel, there's no system of checks and balances. Example for you. When a Vladimir Putin-type individual comes on the scene and wants to become a world ruler and dominate and take over, other nations step in and keep him in check and take measures to stop him. But where there's one individual with one nation, with one language, with one religion, and this world leader at the front of him, there's no one to stop him. So these checks and balances that God allows in the diversity of all of our nations, this is a common gift of God, a grace of God for the restraint of evil until the last days. So in Genesis 11, you're finding this early surfacing of this one world leader, one world religion, one common language with one world ambition. And that time in the end days, there will be no one to stop him from flourishing and consuming the earth. Back into the story, verse 7, 
God says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. As I'm working through this, preparing for this weekend, the thing that popped in my mind, maybe it's already in your mind, is how much of a contrast that is to Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when God allowed all the languages to come back together again. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 8, so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. That's it. That's nine verses. We're through it that fast. And you're thinking, I'm going to wrap this up somehow, but I'm going to say right now, don't reach for your car keys just yet. <laughs> Hang on just for a few more minutes. In Genesis 11, you find another crisis has arrived on the scene of world history. And once again, the human race is guilty of abandoning God. Humans have twice experienced the mercy of God and the grace of God, first to Adam and then to Noah, but twice the human population has forsaken God, and so God has to intervene. This time, His intervention results in the origination of the nations, and after the dispersion of Babel, we get the societies that we now enjoy. I very much enjoy the societies of this planet. The nationalities, the ethnicities, it, it's so much richer because we're not just one, we're so diverse. So the, the Bible records and it reveals that when they were scattered, the sons of Noah went out to certain regions. Let me just fill you in on where they've gone if you've never read chapter 10. Chapter 10 reveals that the sons of Japheth, they became the European nations, eventually moving into the realm of what we know as Russia, then moving across the Siberian Peninsula into North America and down to South America. And then what it reveals about Ham is that they moved mostly, the descendants of Ham moved into what we know of today as Africa and parts of Asia, what we think of as India and Pakistan. That was the area that they inhabited, especially around the area of what we call today Canaan, or at that time, they called it the land of the Canaanites. And then there's the descendants of Shem, that first son through whom Jesus came. Those people became the Semitic peoples. And through that line of people became Abram, whom we're going to get into next week. And through Abram became the Jews, and through the Jews came Jesus. I mentioned to you last week that if God were to execute justice immediately for the sins of each generation, He'd have to schedule a worldwide disaster every single generation since the days of Noah. But for now, because of His patience and His mercy on this planet, because He's committed to His patience, He sealed a covenant with His bow in the sky saying, not yet. I'm not going to take them out yet. I'm going to be patient and merciful. So God steps in and He intervenes and brings Nimrod's schemes to nothing by simply confounding the speech of the people and then scatters them out in order to accomplish His purposes. And by scattering them throughout the earth, you find in the Bible right here one of the most far-reaching miracles of all of history. It actually has no parallel. 
until you come to Acts chapter 2. And God allows all the languages to come back together for this one common purpose. And I'm just going to take a moment and show you what that is. Look with me on the screen. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, and the Spirit was giving them utterance. It's obviously speaking of the apostles, the disciples. Keep going, verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And with this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, that's Persia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya and around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God, and therein lies the difference. God allows all the nations to come back together with one tongue to understand in a common understanding the glory of God. He uses the language not for the glory of man, but to glory of God. Specifically, this time they begin speaking of Jesus. Having people from different ethnicities, from different nations, from different languages to speak of God has always been part of God's eternal plan. And I can say that confidently because you're going to discover in eternity that people are speaking from multiple languages. People whom you hang out with here today are not the only people that are going to be in heaven. And there's going to be people there who come from many nations, from many tongues, from many tribes. And while the languages of the humans are different, there's a common language which all the children of God will have in common. Let me show you what that is, and this is where we will end. Revelation 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a very, very cool picture that you're going to see that personally. If you're in Jesus Christ and He's forgiven you of your sins and you're destined for heaven, you're going to see that picture one day. All those peoples of the planet from thousands of years coming together, maybe speaking, speaking in a different language, but with one common intent, to glorify and praise the name of Jesus because He's worthy of it, isn't He, church? That's what Scripture reveals here. One day, you personally will get to witness it. I don't know how God's going to use these things, as I said at the very beginning, to apply it to your life, but I trust that the Holy Spirit can do that, and I'm going to pray for that reality right now. Would you join me? God, I thank you for all the detail that you've revealed in what we've examined this morning. It's absolutely astounding what you show us and how the Holy Spirit applies it to our life. So I pray for every single individual who's part of this church that as you send us out now, 
as we take on the week, that you would give us application for our life, that we would speak into the lives of people within our social circle, confidently looking forward to the day that we'll join you in eternity, and we'll get to praise you ourselves with all the other nations. But for now, God, use us to point other people towards you and apply this to our life. Push on the areas that you spoke to us about during this time. Use it for your glory and for your honor. We ask for this in the name of Jesus, our soon-coming King, and all God's people said, amen. If we haven't met yet, I'd love to meet you. I'll be down here in the front after the service, and the prayer room is open. If you need somebody to pray with you, head over towards that large cherry door. In the meantime, have a great week, New Hope.